Good morning, Internet. How are you all this morning? I am in a different location, in case you could not tell, and today's show is going to be a little truncated as a result of that. I've got some kids upstairs that should be waking up pretty soon. Uh, we're in an Airbnb while on our way to a Higher Things retreat with a bunch of the youth uh, up here in Wisconsin this weekend. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to hang out just like normal, only... I can't hear everything quite the same way I'm used to, so I'm a little off kilter. And on top of that, I'm going to only be here for about an hour, right? So it's supposed to the normal two hours. We're going to go from right now till about 8 o'clock, uh, maybe a little earlier even than that. So good morning, LCMS Christian Howdy from East Texas. Indeed, uh, uh, boy, howdy. Hey, howdy, Hall. How's it go? Oklahoma, there's something they say or everyone says, or we were taught to say when I was in the chorus back in the day. So I'm going to jump right into uh, some of the initial questions um, after announcements. Of course, my book did come out yesterday. Hopefully you pre-ordered Without Flesh. Uh, that's available now as your apologetic, your defense, your explanation of why the Lord's Supper is what it is. And to help you talk with your sacramentarian friends and neighbors, uh, the newsletter is indeed showing up now at redfist.com. So if you don't want to be on the mailing list per se, you can see all the content going there. However, I do recommend you get on the mailing list. Uh, it's one of the few things I think you're going to want to see in your inbox every Monday morning. And Super Chat. Okay, so I learned a little bit about Super Chat last week from one of you who wrote in. So it is turned on. And what I was told by one of you that wrote in is that if somebody Super Chats, I'm supposed to be able to see that. And then there's like this uh, written or unwritten, I don't know, uh, agreement that I'm going to read that chat for sure or focus on that chat for, for sure. Now, here's the trick. I'd like to do that eventually. The trick is I'm using a, a software called Ecamm, and I have no idea how SuperChat interfaces with Ecamm, but the way I monitor everything is not through YouTube directly. So I may have to start doing that. I'm not going to be able to do that this morning, however. So if you SuperChat this morning... I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I just know that it's kind of an in-process thing as I figure it out. Maybe I'll see it because I don't know. Um, I know that there are some of you who have super chatted uh, because uh, we did get, uh, I saw you know, in, in Google Analytics and income and whatnot uh, that there was a little bit there. It's not a ton, um, but I don't want any of you who do that to feel smited or, or slighted is the right word there, slighted by me. Um, but what I do want to do this morning is jump, there we go, How, howdy partners. Ain't Paul, ain't Paul's also in Texas? They're just talking like a Texan. And why is that so small this morning? Dear heavens, look at that. In any case, uh, we're going to jump right into some questions and content because we only got an hour. So I'm just going to see what I can cover. And the first thing I want to do is look at, so I haven't checked this yet. Is this even going to work? Oh, it did. Look at that. Uh, is look at CU Portland. Um, because, oh, how do I adjust this? Hold on. Trouble, trouble everywhere. Let's make this picture a little different. I can scroll as well. There we go. Um, so, uh, hold on. It'll work. It'll work. I'll just read it this way. There you go. Uh, if you haven't you're heard yet, there was a pretty big kind of secular style-ish news coming out of the LCMS or in the LCMS this past week, and that has to do with the closing of Concordia University in Portland, Oregon. This is a big deal. There are a number of Concordia system schools that have been in existence in the Missouri Synod for well over, probably near to a, a century. Most of them not quite there, but in the upper end, it's well over 50 years. Uh, and whether you know it or not, some of them have already closed a while ago, uh, you know, uh, 
the Johnnies. I think it was actually not a Concordia. It's called St. John's in Winfield, Kansas. Was the only one in the system that wasn't a Concordia. But they've been that, that school closed a long time ago. There are some others as well. There was a Concordia in Oakland. Uh, most recently, there's some news about Concordia in Selma, which is a historically black school, has ties to um, uh, emancipation. No, excuse me, that's incorrect. Has ties to the uh, civil liberties movement of the 50s and 60s um, and the Rosa Parks stuff. Uh, there's There was some real history there. Uh, I've been on that campus on two different occasions in my life, and well, both of them, no, one of them connected to speaking and, and being with a friend, visiting a friend, and one connected to playing with the basketball team for Concordia Seminary in, in St. Louis, and we played against their team down there. So I know the campus, uh, I, and I know that place as much as I, I also know um, Concordia Portland, uh, probably even better. So it was sad to see Selma close, but at the time it was said that it was a financial issue. And the thing about that one is that when I was there, I was being told that, like as a as a basketball player, you know, with the seminary, we were being told that there were real financial struggles going on by some of the, the staff that we interfaced with while we were there, or even the students we interfaced with. And that was years before it actually closed. So it was like, okay, um, for me, that wasn't a surprise. For a lot of people, I think it was. Uh, I think they just assumed that, that, I don't know, that money grows on trees, <laughs> and that if we don't support a school, it'll just stay there no matter what. But um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of history there. Portland's a little bit of a different beast, though. Portland has given the impression of being a, a strong university with a financial future for a while. It's got a law school. The science program there is very, very strong. Uh, teacher program for education in the public sector is there, very strong. Um, so, you know, what? why would they have a financial issue? And I don't really know. I don't know if I can speak to that. Um, but I can, I can touch on it just a touch, and I can maybe talk about the bubble and how we shouldn't be surprised by these things. But let me read your letter first. It says, you know, thank you for your time. The question may be too much inside baseball, uh, but do you have any thoughts on the closing of Concordia University Portland and the future of Lutheran education? My family's been involved in CU Portland for four generations, teaching and attending, been hit hard by the announcement. I completely understand if you want, need to pass on the question. Um, and Taylor, from uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, I was baptized in the gymnasium that was that church uh, when I was eight, eight days old, 10 days old, 10 days old, baptized on the 10th day of Missouri Synod Lutheran of Missouri Synod Lutherans. Yes, of course. Uh, so oh, wow, that's so cool, Taylor. Uh, Trinity Lutheran, that, that brings up a, a lot of memories. Go Tigers. Um, uh, and Lutheran education. Wow, I went to school at that school until sixth grade uh, when we moved to California. That move, when my father moved to California, it had a little bit to do with the changing face of Concordia Portland at the time. I'd grown up in and around Concordia, Portland. He was a professor there for 27 years. Um, I, I ran underneath the bleachers during basketball games. I remember, you know, be, you know, being like a five-year-old and looking at these college kids playing basketball, wanting to be that someday. And I actually did get to play on that court um, as a collegiate player for a year. Um, uh, so I've even have, have ties to Concordia, Portland through being a, a student there for a year. Um, so, you know, the love of the school goes pretty deep for me as well. I played on the soccer team, uh, even though I didn't go there to play soccer, I ended up playing on the soccer team. A uh, lot of really good memories. Uh, discovered my love of the English language there and, and changed my major from uh, science-based to, to literature-based, and that really has impacted a lot of my life. Um, so I got a lot, I got a lot, a lot to thank Concordia Portland for. I also, though, know firsthand from being a student there in the late 90s that that's the place where I was taught to believe the Bible wasn't written by, well, I should say, the New Testament letters of Paul were not written by Paul. 
uh, that there are errors in the Bible, that I shouldn't believe it to be true. It's where I was exposed to things like women's ordination being a good idea. It's where I was taught that evolution is the only obvious uh, solution to the scientific things that we see. All of this while being there and un unexpecting this as a, um, a freshman Christian. Now, I, I don't know how much of a Christian was I. Uh, if you know anything about my history of my life, um, uh, I had some years where I was really floating, and those years were kind of involved in there as well. But all the same, the auspices, you know, I was a Lutheran kid raised by Lutherans who cared about Lutheranism. I go to this school, and what was I taught in the classes? I was taught to distrust creation. I was taught to, to believe in a progressive view of Christianity. I was taught to believe the Bible wasn't true. That was late 90s, 97, right? I mean, that's a long time ago, <laughs> uh, and, and I, it hasn't gotten better. So there was a theological drift that Portland was associated with, in my mind, from that time on. I know from studying history that it goes back even further than that, and that as a, as a university, it was one of the most friendly to the, the Seminex, Seminarian Exile, uh, Eden Seminary, very liberal problem in the 1970s in Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Um, and they were very friendly to all of that, even way back then. And that stamp and that mark in their theological department has never really been removed. Now, is that a reason that the school should close? No, I don't think so. Is that a reason to rejoice that the school closed? No, I don't think so. I mean, anytime you lose a footprint, like a university, <laughs> from your organization, this is a terrifyingly sad, sad thing. Um, I, I just because something is sad doesn't mean it's unnecessary or couldn't have been seen and foreseen and known it was coming or could not have been avoided with a different tact, a different uh, strategy, right? Um, and so I, just because I say it's sad doesn't mean that I'm actually blown away by this. I'm not. I'm not even really that surprised. I'm kind of surprised it was Concordia Portland first, um, but I'm not really that surprised. Why? Because I believe that a, a significant number of universities are going to be closing over the next 20 to 40 years. And only the those universities that have stockpiled, and I, I mean stockpiled, you look at like Harvard and Yale, they have stockpiled money. They have investments that are making money over and beyond. Uh, you know, they're invested with Warren Buffett kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, if you haven't got that kind of resources, the cost of maintaining the facade of what people expect from a university education is just going to keep rising like a lot of other costs are rising. And eventually, uh, whatever game is being played of sort of forwarding the debt into the future to grow the school, to appease the kids, to bring the kids in, to get them into debt, to forward your debt, and so forth, that bubble and that cycle, it can't keep going forever. Uh, and it, this has been in the news from, for, from secular talk, or like not, not in the news so much, but this has been sort of like the half conspiracy projection of secular talk TV. So that's, that's not really conspiracy theory, but you know, there have been those who've said things like this as talking heads on TV for years now, that our universities are a bubble, that they're going to collapse, that it can't be maintained, that they're just building and building and building and they're using debt to do it, that it's a student debt and student loan crisis that's facilitating the entire thing. Okay, well, I think that's true. Okay, and so for me, that means that you're going to see universities running up against a wall pretty hard and they're going to be some that you think, well, why aren't they? I thought they were strong. Well, no, what they were doing was they were repackaging their previous debt into new debts and using it and, and building and growing, using growth as a mask for that. And you can do that for a time until the day when it comes due and you can't pay it. And who knows what kind of magic it takes to make that happen, what kind of manipulation of the numbers. I'm not that guy. 
I just believe it's possible. So my guess and my hunch on this is that that had something to do with, with Portland. I know there were other issues, social issues with the LBGTQ community and, and all of that. That may have had a play. All things like this are complex. All things like this are complex. Uh, but what I know is that uh, at a certain point in Portland's history, they, they did begin a building program that never stopped. And they just kept building and building and building. They kept adding new things. Um, and uh, it was always in this in the... Uh, the name of saving the school, because in the first place, the school was a teacher's college and a pastoral formation college, and that was all it was, all it was for, and then when it added these other elements, stopped being a college and started becoming a university, the idea was it was going to save the school from closing because of the debt and the costs that the school couldn't maintain, right? So that was there. That's going back to like the 80s, okay? Um, so it, it's been there as a financial problem. They've been on the verge for four decades, right? Uh, and so, again, the, they couldn't make it. What I think is amazing is I read through the Board of Regents letter, and I don't know if this is an easy one to see, and maybe they're not doing this, but the way I read that letter was, we can close accidentally and have all the students and all of the teachers be on the street without any way of really knowing what to do next, or we can plan to close and close on purpose in such a way that gives everyone the best potential to continue what they were already doing, right? Whether that's you've got a career or whether that's you're working on your thesis. The, the idea is like we're not going to just have it be shut down because we can't pay you today and now teachers just aren't working, right? We're going to go ahead and see that this is coming. This is what we got to do. Now, maybe that's just the best construction. I don't know. You know, I really don't know. Um, but in this then, my, my advice to everybody is like, look, this is not the last Concordia we're probably going to see close in the next 30 years. Just just kind of get your hearts ready. Which ones are going to make it? I don't know. All of my opinion is just based on like, you know, outside observation. There's some that are stronger. There's some that are weaker. What was one of it was Ann Arbor had to be taken under the wing of, of uh, uh, Mequon recently and is basically an extension of them. And that's an attempt to stop that from closing. So we just, we just can't be surprised by this. And we have to understand that the, two things, two things. College education is not what you thought it, what, what you remember it being. Whatever you remember it being, it's not that anymore. Even good college education, it's not that anymore. It's different. It's high power. It's, it's high power business world kind of stuff, right? It's intense. It's expensive. It's cutthroat. Um, uh, so that's the first thing to know. And this isn't the 70s where, you know, you just went to college and, and, and you loved everybody. It was a great, amazing community. That is very rarely the case uh, in, in anything but a corner of, of most university campuses today. Um, and secondly, then, Oh, I lost it. What was the second thing? Um, oh, it's, ex it's just expensive. It's expensive. Uh, and the, the student loan crisis and debt, that's not going to go away. If you think the government comes in and does, we're going to pay for everyone's schooling, that it's all going to make all these schools stay open. That's not what's going to happen at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to have schools close faster because the government will, will force certain expectations and, and uh, things to be paid for, and you just won't be able to make it as a corporation. Uh, when people come and say, well, this is supposed to be free, and the government's like, well, we'll, we'll give you this much of the tax money, and it's less than what you can really afford. So it just... Whatever way we look at it, expect more closures. Uh, if you really care about your university, your alma mater, that's a Concordia, you got to get involved. You just do. You got to get involved. You got to get involved giving. You got to get involved making sure there's an endowment. You got to, you know, do I think that that's worth doing right now? I, I don't know. I don't know. 
you know, my, my own view, I've shared this other places on education. My kids are probably not going to university. Uh, they can, they're free to, but it's not like the life goal that many people have. Uh, our goal for them is to be as educated as they need to be to successfully survive in a postmodern dystopian age, post-enlightened dystopian age. And I just don't see college education as of necessity being the path to that. It can be, um, but that kind of depends. And it's a very expensive path. So even there, uh, we'll be get using, using local universities, junior colleges, uh, extension, online education, and then they're going to do what they want to do. Um, so you know, if, if one of my kids wants to be a surgeon, they're going to have to end up in a university eventually. But we just aren't assuming that that's the way to go. Um, and part of that is because I think these universities are overpriced, right, in the market. You're spending, you're basically paying for a spoiled child's lifestyle for four years with a small amount of education thrown in. Um, and also some, some indoctrination and brainwashing at many universities. So uh, I don't want to pay for that. Uh, I would rather have them be able to, uh, to, you know, duct tape and hack together their collegiate education, which you can do f with a computer from anywhere in the world today. I'd rather have them do that under our guidance and under the spiritual care of the of a good church um, and in a community of trust uh, than just out there. So for me, like the university thing isn't even that big of a, a deal in general. Other than that, with Concordia University, Portland, and the other Concordias as we have them, these are tools. These are tremendously powerful tools that could be used for great gain and great good in the present age. Are we doing that? Are we going to do that? I think you have to take each of the schools uh, apart, both historically, where they've been, where they're going, what they're trying to do, um, uh, you know, in, in a in a, a direction and a spectrum, and separate from each other because they're not all the same. Uh, to answer any of those questions, but um, by and large, I mean, we we don't have a Hillsdale, if I can just say it that way. Uh, <laughs> Hillsdale's doing what we should be doing, and uh, there is not a single one of our universities that I would say is doing what Hillsdale's doing. So, and if you don't know what that means, then that's too much inside baseball. That's about conservative collegiate education and how to preserve uh, a, a uh, what's the right word, a true enlightenment mind uh, for the sake of problem solving and survival in a post-enlightened age. I mean, that's kind of what Hillsdale's doing. Patrick Henry's doing it too, or they were at least years ago. So, in any case, that's kind of where I am on that. Um, it's sad though. I mean, I, I, I really had an affinity for the Cavaliers. I never really liked the, uh, uh, the logo much, but, uh, you know, Concordia Cavaliers, uh, there's a lot of history there for me personally, and I am by no means excited to see this happen. Um, uh, I, I wish, or I hope there's some way for us to keep some, some element of that footprint. I mean, that, that property, dear heavens, that property is worth a lot of money. wonder what's going on there. Goodness. Um, th that area of Portland has exploded. It used to be incredibly uh, poor, and it's no longer. Houses that were very, very inexpensive are now like million-dollar homes um, or properties even. Uh, so uh, that, that's an interesting thing in that it would be ideal to keep the footprint and, and bring it back in some way, but you know who knows? Who knows? Uh, there's just too many pieces involved, and I understand having just left a footprint in an area in Rockford, like sometimes you just don't have a choice. Yeah, sometimes the numbers are just the numbers, and it's like you give up on everything, uh, or you, um, or you pretend it's not real and crash. You know. Uh, so, anyway, uh, that's my thoughts on that. And Taylor, I really appreciate it. And if are you Dwayne Brandt's like granddaughter by any chance? Like that's really cool. If that's the case, um, that guy taught me how to eat steak. And I'm very thankful for that. I will always, always uh, appreciate that he taught me that you're not supposed to have it be cooked. 
all the way through. That's what my father taught me, and Dwayne Brandt saved me. Thank you, Dwayne Brandt. And Taylor, thank you, Taylor Brandt, if you are indeed his progeny. All right, thanks for the question. Uh, I know I wanted to hit a bunch of these uh, today. We'll see. We'll see. Time and time and time and time. I see you guys making comments over there as well. Has anybody made a super chat? Because I wouldn't know. <laughs> I really wouldn't know. But you can see there's a lot of questions here on the side. And so um, I'm kind of going to be annoying, ignoring comments a little bit here. Uh, let's see. I can see that this way. Um, make this bigger. There we go. Uh oh, don't do that. Uh, two questions. We've been Lutheran for 10 years. Prior to our becoming Lutheran, we were Baptist. We attended a Wells Church, have been happy, but recently see changes that are problematic. Uh, they're desiring praise bands, have emotional songs. We've been refreshed by word and sacrament law gospel, but quietly we left behind. Uh, what we left behind is creeping into our church. Leadership says they're trying to bring in more people through music. Oh, that's exactly what God sent us to do. He said, go out, preach the word, and if it doesn't work, use music. I think that's that's right there in Matthew 28. Like, why do we never ask the question? It, maybe it's the preaching. Sorry, guys. I don't know who you guys are at all. But it's just like if you're making that argument that you – I understand you need good music. I completely agree with this, right? I, I'm, I'm on a quest for good music. <laughs> at the same time, uh, if you're trying – this is just such a, t a tired argument to bring in – people are not going to go to your church because of the music. Your members should want to like the music they're hearing at church. It should be part of your community, but people aren't going to join your church because it's a rock concert. Or, or if they do, they're there for the wrong reason. It's just a terrible idea. I share my concerns. I'm told it's audio offer. Okay, this is the point of the question. It's the audio offer. Um, so we have freedom to do this. Yeah, of course you have freedom to change the music. For Pete's sake, that's the dumbest thing. But but why are, the, the reason you're changing the music, you don't have freedom to have that be your reason. That's a dogmatically, biblically incorrect reason. Jesus does not want us to convert people with music. He wants us to convert them with his words, with his ideas, with what he said, with what he did, right? So it's nonsense. It's nonsense. You, it, it is no longer adiaphora the moment you are using it as your idol. And the problem with revivalism, now I don't know about these guys, these pastors. I don't know you from Adam. Um, hey, I did. I get a super chat. Ain't Paul left a super chat? I saw that. Um, uh, I don't know these guys from Adam. Okay, so who knows? Maybe they're the greatest theologians ever, but they're unaware that revivalism has always had this tact. It has always said the word is insufficient. You need not just the word; you need good preaching of it. And they don't mean just good preaching; you mean entertaining preaching. And that's where the line is getting crossed between good preaching to entertaining preaching. And then that's not enough. You have to add entertaining music as well. Charles Finney is the guy who establishes. He had the biggest church in New York City back in the 1700s. This is not new, but what it has done, I think, demonstrably historically in uh, in 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 uh, America, what it has done is it has entered into endless numbers of fairly healthy congregations and churches and destroyed them uh, by teaching them to put their hope in the music and in keeping up with the wind of the pop culture change, which is impossible to do, okay? Unless you're spending b millions, billions of dollars every year as a corporation, you don't know what's coming down the pike next. You cannot keep up. You're not going to be able to compete, and you will get trapped in a small generational segment that will be unable to pass itself forward because it only loves this one era, yeah? Um, that's, that's just part of the diagnosis but the point is you're putting your hope in the music um so uh to say that it's audiophora what is audiophora first off we should if you have to use the word audiophora you're already wrong 
Like the moment you're in that point, having that conversation, you're just making an excuse. You're, you're, you're using jargon to hide the ideas. You should be able to have the conversation without using the word adiaphora. What does adiaphora mean? Adiaphora is a word from the Confessions that talks about, it's Latin, things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. That is, the Bible doesn't really talk about this at all. It doesn't really talk about, say, should you have uh, uh, anchovies on your pizza, right? Well, that would be an Audiophora. But if I have to say audiophora in a conversation about pizza, then I'm a jerk, right? Okay, so so what is the point? The point is that the Bible does allow us some freedom in things it neither commands nor forbids. And in this regard, we should not bind ourselves to laws of men as if they are laws of God. This is just common sense, yeah? But, but then here's the question. If you're saying to somebody, oh, I see that this completely paganizing destructive historical movement is entering our church and it seems to me the signs of that the, the lies and, uh, and the falsehoods that it teaches are entering our church and their answer is oh well it's just about us worshiping the music and that's audiophora right which is effectively accidentally what has been said well I don't know what to say to you, right? It's You're not free to do this. Are you free to change the music at your church? Kind of. You know, I'm pretty confident that the bit on Adiaphora in Formula Concord Article 10 talks about not creating controversy, right? So uh, if you're going to change the music at your church and you're going to create a controversy, you're not supposed to do it. Like, it, it. like it's very clear about that, right? And then, well, the other piece of it is it cannot really impinge on things that are commanded, and are forbidden. Having sex with someone you're not married to is not adiaphora, right? It's, it's pretty commanded. Don't do that, right? Uh, and so with that regard, is does the Bible say nothing about worship? It says zero. It, we're just totally free in worship, do whatever we want. Okay, well then, then it's not an adiaphora no matter how we cut it, okay? Organ, piano, ultimately, adiaphora, yes. But like, just cause? No, nothing's adiaphora just cause, right? you still have to deal with uh, who we are as a people and where we stand in history. And in this regard, again, if you come out of a evangelical church, uh, a big box church, a, uh, a gospelist, a glospelist church, uh, a gospel church, I should say, then you're going to have a certain level of uh, olfactory bothersomeness. You're going to smell the heterodoxy of the church growth movement whenever you see it. And that's normal and good, but you got to realize most Lutherans don't have that. They've never been trained with that. They just, they actually think it smells kind of good. They're kind of tired of their dry, overcooked steak, which is bad liturgy, or liturgy done boringly, I should say. Um, and yeah, so they, they start hunting for some other spices, and they, they think, well, okay, we're going to bring in some, some revivalism. That smells pretty good. They just have no idea what's going to come with it, and it doesn't come right away. It never comes right away. It takes 40 years, <laughs> uh, uh, but it'll get there eventually. Well, once you've, it's all based on what I said earlier. If, you know, if these guys, these pastors, God bless you for the work you do. If, if you're watching and you're all upset at me because I'm judging you, I'm not judging you. I'm judging the argument here that's been put on the screen that you desire more people in church through music. You have started that. Okay, so you have orthodoxies like a, uh, a straight line going to, to salvation, right? And you just went like this. And you, just, you just upped us a 1% here, right? A 1% grade. And what's going to happen is over time, that 1% grade of we're going to bring people in through not the word of God is just going to keep doing this. It's just going to keep doing this. And who knows in 40 years where that thing gets. Uh, but it's what you, writer, Marsha, that's what you're bothered by. 
Okay, you don't maybe know it, but that's you can smell that thing, right? And what's what's my advice to you? My advice is to continue talking gently to your pastor. Do not send them this video. This is not the answer that they probably need at all. They need you to continue to ask questions like, you, Pastor, you told me is that we're going to bring him in through music. I thought we were supposed to bring him in through the Word of God. That's that's what you got to ask about. Can you can, and try to bring him to see how this is not an answer. This is not a, a Lutheran answer. Um, uh, so that that would be number one on that. And then number two is uh, well, uh, talk to other people about the same thing in the church. Find out if anyone else is worried about this. If it's happening, it's probably going to happen no matter what. And then the the long and short of that is you're probably going to have to leave the church eventually, or you just got to put up with it. He's got to let it be. Uh, and that, you know, I know leaving churches is about personalities and relationships. There's not always another faithful church nearby, so you got an issue there. I get it. That's not an easy answer. But what I would do, I mean, if, if I went to the pastor and I said, hey, pastor, I can't go to a church that does this. And he said, well, we're going to do it. I'd be like, well, then I got to go. <laughs> and and it'd be, I would not be angry, you know, necessarily. I'd be sad. It's like, okay, well, yeah, there goes this church. Um, and does it mean they're going to close their doors? No, 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 no. It just means they're attaching themselves to Methodism at the end of the day. Uh, this is, I, sh I should say, when I say revivalism, Methodism and revivalism are like this, right? They're kind of the same movement. Uh, one's officially a church body. One is, is theologically developed a little bit more than revivalism is. Methodism is developed more than revivalism, but they have so many of the same pieces. So uh, when you let the revivalist assumptions in, it's Methodism that eventually is produced as a practice in, in some way, whether you like it or not, which includes then generally the way that a Methodist would view things like even atonement and salvation, election, all that kind of sanctification, all that stuff, it may never use that terminology, but the the framework is the same. You could take the terminology of Methodism and impose it over the top of a non-denominational church, any pick any one of them, and it's going to line up. Uh, what they teach is going to line up with it. And so that's the path to get started here. And if you got the confessions and you got a faithful pastor, he can fight back for a long time. But if that really is the assumption that we have to use the music, otherwise people won't come to church, the crack is open, and it's just going to start pouring. Well, the truth is going to start leaking out eventually. Um, I do got to say, um, as I've chatted with a number of, of Wells guys, if you're out there, listeners and watchers, I, I'm always being given the argument that this doesn't happen in your church body. And I just want to point out that it does, because I knew it does. I knew it does. I already knew it did. I've heard of it before. Um, and I love you guys, and you guys are more unified than we are, so don't get me wrong. And you hold the line, but don't don't be blind to it. Like, there it is. Right, there it is. All right, so, audio for uh, excuses. Let's see if we can find that super chat that did show up. Now, how do I find it in the back? Was it this one, Adia Pizza? Was that it? It was. I know it was It was Aunt Paul. I can't stand, oh, for goodness sakes. I can't stand why this thing's so long. Is it because I'm on a different screen, and I can't, can I just shorten it? There we go. There we go. Was that it? I know it was St. Paul. Is there a marker? Nope, nope. It was right here. Super chat. A four ninety nine from St. Paul. Here's a super chat. That was four ninety nine. For do you get to choose your super chat? Like you just decide. I'm gonna say this much. That was really kind of you, St. Paul. By the way, thank you very much for doing that. Um, so there's a super chat, and I can see it, and I can add it to broadcast. Oh, I do it twice. That's kind of fun. And there, that was a different button. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, I appreciate the super chat. I will try to keep an eye on that and pull those in even while I'm in the middle of talking. Um, mm, 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 mm. I'm looking at the comments, but I need to go back and do the other questions because they're the things that are really here. Okay, you guys sent me so many questions this week, and I really want to get to so many of them. Okay, here we go. Um, and some of my kids are awake. 
Hi, kids. We're going to be doing this for a while still, so I hope you're enjoying the show from the side. Yes? Maybe? Yeah, they're chilling over there. Again, we're at, we're at an Airbnb. Uh, there's a Higher Things retreat this weekend. Uh, my wife's a chaperone. She's got all the girls on a floor. <laughs> I'm at an Airbnb, but I got young kids I have to take care of, so it's not like it ain't work. I swear it's work. Um, it is work taking care of the young kids, but these two are pretty good. They just vanished, though. I wonder what they're going to do. Anyhow, back to the show. Um, question about abortion. Uh, could you exegete more eloquently than I the original meaning in the passages that pro-choice people use to say the Bible would say that life doesn't start until first breath? Genesis 2-7 being the example uh, is easily countered as Adam's creation was different than every other person's creation. I cannot think of the passage a friend used, but it said something about life beginning when God breathed into them. I take it to mean eternal life beginning when the Holy Spirit is placed on you in baptism, but she used it to defend abortion till birth. Uh, the Bible also speaks much regarding life in the womb in Jeremiah, Psalms, Luke. Thanks for your help. Yeah. So I, let me just say this. Let me just kind of say this. I mean, this is like, like, no one's going to like this, I don't think. I'm pro-life first, so just, just know this. I'm like diehard pro-life. I don't think you're going to convince anybody who's pro-abortion to be pro-life by using the Bible. I don't think you're going to do it. And the reason I don't think you're going to do it is because if you believe abortion is acceptable, you're, you are so far outside of reality, reason, obvious things. Like you're so past the obvious that words on a page aren't going to help you if, because you're already geared toward ignoring the obvious on this thing. You will do anything rather than see the obvious. And so if I come along like, well, this book says something, you're going to be like, I don't care what it says. Like your your head does not going to care what it says. And you'll look at, well, see, I found a way out of it. It doesn't mean this. And you'll just make up some nonsense like this exegesis you're talking about here. It's nonsense. First off, we shouldn't be using Genesis 2-7 to prove life begins at or after conception. It just doesn't talk about that. It's talking about God making mankind. And the breath of life, which is the spirit of God going into him. This isn't just about air. You know, and, and the loss of that spirit in the fall, we still have the breath of life in us, the air of life in us. But, but by all means, for peace, that's like saying, so, so the baby has to breathe with the lungs to be alive, and then the oxygen going into the body and even kind of being used to help the lungs develop a little bit, uh, that doesn't count. I mean, it's just nonsense again. You, you're, you're in such a rabbit hole. And so for me, that's, to, that's playing on their territory. You're in the rabbit hole of a nonsense argument. Try arguing with the Mad Hatter. You're going to have a fun time. It's a, it's a riot, okay? But but you're just not going to get anywhere in the conversation. The fact is you're killing a baby. And if you can't see that, well, then you can't see that. And, and the only way I think I'm ever going to convince you of that is to show you the baby. <laughs> you know, the, the way that you convince somebody who's pro-abortion to not be pro-abortion is, is to show them an abortion. Like, like they have to see it. They have to know what's going on. And granted, there are people who do it all the time, like they're doing it, and they're, they're justifying it. Um, but even they, I mean, the ones who've come out into the pro-life movement and said, you know, once they realized, it, they're literally saying, it's like, once I saw what I was doing. Like they were doing it all the time, and then one day they just like looked at it, and they were like, dear heavens, look what I'm doing, right? I, gotta, I can't do this. 
You know, that somehow has to happen. I'm not saying we should be trumpeting, you know, disgusting pictures on billboards or anything like that either. Although I, I wonder about that. You know, it doesn't seem like that's a that's a, a, a reasonable approach. However, have we tested its results? Have we ever done it and said how many people did have their minds changed? I mean, it. I don't know that we apply that kind of thinking, which is common business marketing thinking in every other corner of ever. Um, I'm not sure Christians think that way about stuff. Um, maybe they do. But, 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 um, point again, the obvious is already being denied. So they're not going to believe the Bible. Why would they? Well, I'm a Christian and I'm for abortion. Okay, you, 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 have, you are not Captain Obvious. <laughs> uh, and so the Bible then is probably not going to matter that much, but you shall not murder would be the real verse to go to. You shall not murder, right? You shall not murder. The least of these, the orphans, all that kind of thing. Um, but what you're doing when you're getting there and you're letting them make these arguments about when life begins with breath, what you're doing is just you're giving them a, a platform for justifying themselves. So what they're, they're trying to say is, I am justified in my actions apart from Christ uh, because why? And then they'll come up with a bunch of reasons. And if they try to use the Bible to actually prove that the life doesn't begin, at, it's just like the Bible doesn't really talk about this because it's obvious. And it, you know, no old world person would ever think this was not obvious, that this isn't human life. You know why people in ancient Rome committed abortion? It wasn't because they didn't think it was human. They thought they were humans. They just didn't care about humans. <laughs> they were like, whatever, a baby, whatever. Yeah, it's a human, but so is a slave. What's the difference, you know? It's a mouth to feed, and we got survival to deal with. We're pagans. We don't care, right? So, so Christianity comes along, and what Christianity does just diametrically is it changes the value of the human. It's not about that we convinced everybody the babies were humans. We convinced them that they were valuable. <laughs> uh, we convinced the, the world that sick people are valuable. It used to be that sick people more or less were just left to die. Christians came along and started trying to help them heal. Science and medicine comes out of this exclusively, almost, not, not exclusively, almost exclusively, Western Civ exclusively. And, and so... Now, why? Because sick people are valuable. People are valuable. We believe this. Then you come along with abortion. It comes back into the 60s, and we say, well, those people aren't valuable. At the same time, the civil rights movement is saying that these people are valuable who have been treated so poorly, and that's true. We then also said these people are not valuable. And who are they? The, the, the weakest, again, the least of these. So, so if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody about when life begins, what, where would I go? I would go to the embryology science books. That's where I would go. I would go to the, the embryology textbooks that show what a baby development is, what a human life is. That's what I would do. I say, look, you can argue about you know uh, dirt and God's hand all we want, and the ruach of God that you clearly are misunderstanding to think is just about the Holy Spirit as well. And this is this is you, right? Yeah, the, the ruach of God is is more than just your baptism, right? Um, uh, but that's such a complex thing. That's such a, a complex thing. It, 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 volumes and volumes and volumes are written on the Ruach, the, the word spirit, and and what this means and what these verses are. And to just dive into these things and try to apply them to abortion when they really have nothing to do with that. They, they do at times have to do with the value of human life in general, in general, right? Um, but if you want to argue abortion and when life begins, what we should do is believe what God says about our brains, which is that we can understand the world around us, that God hides a thing and kings seek it out. And so we've sought out what an embryology, excuse me, I said that poorly, uh, we've sought out what um, an embryo, a baby, 
which is just Latin, I think, or Greek for baby, uh, Latin, uh, we sought out what an embryo development looks like. And you can see when life begins. And you can set your markers for when all these things are working. And no matter who you are, there's no way you can say that thing ain't a human life um, all the way till birth. There's <laughs> just no way. Uh, that to make the argument that's when they take their first breath is just the most nonsensical thing I have ever heard in my life. And it's, it, it should be laughed at. Pro-abortion advocates should laugh at this argument as being like, wait, 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 we sound dumb when we say this. <laughs> uh, because that's... Uh, that's what it is. All right. So I, I hope that helps. I don't know. I was a bit snarky, probably to you as well, and I apologize. This issue does bother me a great deal. I continue to think not only that it's sad that it's it's here, but that the way that we've fought it um, has in some ways been without repentance and uh, without a, a re-embracing of the value of the human because we continue to advocate not killing them while we also advocate not having them via other methods, whether they be abortifacients, which many people use and don't realize, or whether they be strictly non-abortifacient, we have, we have not embraced a procreative culture uh, as Christians. So we're really arguing out of both sides of our mouths when we talk about the value of human life and the baby. Um, all right, so move, moving on here. Uh, already saved a very close friend. He is a Baptist. Uh, I used to be Baptist. I'm now a Lutheran, a little over 10 years. He likes discussing theology. We talk about baptism in the supper. I went to my pastor. He explained the situation to him and asked him for resources that he uh, that would help me talk to my friend. My pastor said uh, that my friend was a Christian and I didn't have to worry about him or talk to him. Like that just hurts. That's just like ouch. Um, really? I'm sorry uh, for you. Uh, go somewhere else. I really mean that. Like, if, if he's saying that, I'm saying, whoever you are, pastor, you know what, dude? Like, really? What? I don't even know how to how to how to begin here. Uh, my pastor said, you know, uh, instead go to talk to people who are unchurched. Although I don't doubt my friend is a Christian, the truth about the Lord's Supper is marvelous. Yeah, you think so? Uh, and I want to share that truth with him. Yeah, why would you not want to share truth? Don't share truth with that person. They have some. Go share truth only with those people who have none. What? Like, but that guy's got half-truth. The half-truth's going to end up destroying the truth so that more people will have none. How is it a different fight? How is it a different conversation? I don't see that there's no difference. The fact that you would think it's treating Jesus like a toaster. Well, he's got the toaster. He's getting in, he'll get into heaven now with his toaster. But they don't have toasters. We've got to go sell some toasters. It's a pyramid scheme. It's, it's, it's just the stupidest thing ever. Sorry, sorry. It, it's offensive, though. It's offensive. I just wrote a book about how the Lord's Supper is the gospel. The Lord's Supper is the gospel, and if you don't think you if you don't think that's true, then you don't have the whole gospel. Yeah, read the book. <laughs> I'm not trying to sell the book, but, but you know, uh, the gospel cannot fully express itself in your life without the Lord's Supper, and you can believe in the gospel without the Lord's Supper, but you cannot have it experienced subjectively uh, without the Lord's Supper. And it is it is it is the uh, the supper is the gospel enacted upon you over and over again everlastingly so. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the guy's a Christian, meaning he's saved, hopefully. Who knows? Anybody who just says, well, I'm a Christian, you know, we just assume that they're saved? Don't we believe there's hypocrites in the church? We talked about this last week. I mean, if it, 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 see, again, well, he doesn't. He doesn't believe there's hypocrites in the church, obviously. He, otherwise, he'd say, tell everybody the truth all the time. But Article 8 of the Augsburg Confession, which in theory he subscribes to, 
does say there's hypocrites in the church. There's unbelievers in the church. So you should even tell Christians who believe in the Lord's Supper about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> because maybe they don't believe it. <laughs> because maybe you don't. Maybe I don't. Right? We should always be speaking all of the truth of the Word of God to everybody we talk to all of the time. There really is no part of life that's outside of this. You go, oh, well, bears football's outside of this. Well, I suppose so, although God created the grass, didn't he then? So we can enjoy it as a gift of God's creation with gratitude and thanks. We should say, thank you, God, for football, and pray before the game and, and enjoy that. Well, then that would be bringing sanctification and the life of Christianity into that too. It's everything. And so to think you're going to turn it off, and, and what's worse is he's got this really awful, I mean, what's coming through here is this really awful anthropology Um uh, a Pelagian anthropology of uh, seeing salvation as being something man enacts. And he would he would probably say, oh, I'm not a Pelagian. Uh, you know, you don't make a decision for Jesus. Yeah, but, but you think that we make decisions for other people for Jesus. See? So you're still a Pelagian. You think that this unchurched person hasn't been talked to because of us. And so we have to, like, do something to make that happen. Now, I, I, actually, I'll give you, he hasn't been talked to because of us. However, we're not the ones to make it happen. God will make it happen through us, but it will be God doing that. And you know how that will happen most? It's when you have a member who wants to tell somebody about what they believe, and you give them a resource so they can do it, because then they'll get better at it, and then they'll talk to somebody else, and they'll know what they're saying, and that person might be unchurched. And so they'd have all the capacity and the success, and here they are asking you to train them to talk to other people about Jesus, and you said, don't waste your time. Sorry, I'm angry about that. That's a ridiculous answer. And again, it's one-sided. I don't know who you are. If you're the Joseph, you're the, the reader here. Look, I'm responding to your letter as is. Your pastor maybe doesn't even realize you got out of what he said, what you got out of it, and he said something completely different. So don't go back to him with this anger. But 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 if he really does mean this, right? If he really does mean that you don't need to talk to your friend about Jesus because your friend's a Christian. Um, well, then maybe you want to consider a pastor who will think that's important. You know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, we misunderstood him. So go ask him again, gently and kindly and seek counsel. Be ready at that time to ask him if he doesn't think it's valuable to train you so that you can talk about it when you talk to the unchurched and the churched. <laughs> Those categories are so awful. They are not our categories. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, so you can talk to humans about Jesus, wherever they are. <laughs> um, so be ready to ask him for that, um, and then be ready to, to be really sad. Because if he, if he doesn't think it's important to talk to other people about Jesus, if they're Christians too, um, I just don't know how you can survive there for long. You know, your faith is just going to be just completely challenged. Already saved. I mean, it's like, are, are we once saved, always saved? Does he believe that? We're not once saved, always saved. I mean, that's what I was talking about before. Like, you, you actually don't believe in election. You've got this weird Pelagian, uh, um, Armenian anthropology going on where you think it's about human will. Uh, and so as a result, well, that human's got his will saved. He's, he's good. As if he can't fall away. He could fall away. Well, you could fall away. So, so don't you need the word to keep coming? It's just... There are so many assumptions built into that church-unchurched language out of this revivalistic uh, Arminianism, and you think you can just kind of throw baptism on the front of it and like make it all not like that anymore, as if systems aren't systems? Like, oh my goodness, what is this? I'm tangenting now. What is this about a certain era of theologians? And it really is a certain era. 
who don't believe in systems. They just believe in pieces of systems. And so they think that, you know, I can go into a computer and I can take out this one piece and just put some other piece in and the computer is going to work fine. It doesn't matter. I mean, it could be just different color, different shape, different, you know, a different computer system or whatever. Just, oh, just put a thing in there. I'll put a gummy bear in there. It'll work okay. People like gummy bears. What's wrong? You don't like gummy bears? You're a mean person. Like that's the level of argument you get when what's going on is with with just not just theology, with knowing God, with the knowledge of God, which involves then the knowledge of your world around you, which means then your worldview, everything that you experience. What's going on there is a system. It's not one idea or another idea. There are multiple ideas that are tied to each other that enact the framework of truth or what you call truth or what you call reality. And in there, there are certain assumptions. There are certain assumptions, right? And if you let your assumptions get changed, say, by the media, it's going to eventually change all of your, your, your solutions and where you get to. But if you change higher elements of solution, of uh, uh, things you think about, you're like, okay, so I know this and therefore I know that, right? If you start pulling those pieces out and you don't realize how many other things they touch, well, then you're going to end up destroying a bunch of stuff you're not really aware that you're removing from your worldview. And you're not going to do it in a moment again. It's going to take you a year or three or five as these choices you make about what you believe truth is pan themselves out into that system. But it, it means believing truth is more than one word or one sentence. It doesn't stand by itself. It's interconnected with all of existence, which makes sense. It's existence, right? Words don't exist apart from existing. That, would, that just doesn't make sense. But that's how we treat them. Like they're like these independent little godlike things with, with a life all their own. I have a statement that decision theology is wrong. See, I said it. Therefore, everything else I do would never teach that. But, of course, they're just separate things and they have nothing to do with each other. Well, see, you don't realize that that, that thing you're claiming is wrong is an idea with all sorts of other tendrils and you've bought five of them already. So someone's going to come after you and say decision theology is right. Because that's the only thing left to be turned back, and it's your one statement. You don't apply to everything else you think about. <laughs> you know? I'm, not, I'm, I'm tangenting. I have no idea about the individual, right, that individual pastor, if he, if he thinks that way. This is about showing that, like, adiaphora, right? It's not just disconnected. It's organic. Church is organic. Uh, knowing God is organic. Uh, these words, when I'm struggling to say these words and to translate these words, I'm not trying to get rid of the theology. I'm trying to keep the theology and find have ways for us to cling to these words even more because it's organic need that we have. It's our need for an organic relationship with God, uh, a true knowing of God. And it means all these pieces, all of these pieces need to be tied together. Super chat over here in the corner. Um, just straight up. Thank you. Three dollars. Three dollar. Um, thank you so much. I, I, I expected you to say something so that I could laud your super chattedness and all that. Really appreciate it, um, Kevin. And you, you seem like a new guy here. Um, thanks for joining. Uh, don't recognize your face from commenting world. All right. So here we go. Um, what was that one? Oh, yeah. I just left that on the screen for a while. I'll come back to that eventually. Um, so I think this one's fun. Well, we have tattoos forever as in after the resurrection, right? We talked about tattoos last time, didn't we? I think we did. Um, or was that somewhere else I talked about tattoos recently? I can't remember now. Uh, oh, where was that? That's what happens when you have too many meetings to talk about things like this is you just forget where you talked about it. Uh, will we have tattoos in heaven? Let's just go straight at that. The answer is I don't know. I don't know. Jesus will have scars in heaven. Okay? That's what I know. 
Jesus will have scars in heaven. What will they look like? Will they be dripping blood all the time? Probably not. I don't know, though. I mean, he'll do it however he's going to do it. He's going to have a crown. He's going to have wounds in his wrists or his hands. And we will gaze upon these glorious things for all eternity. And there are joy and our hope, right? The knowledge of our king and his salvation of us. And, and his confession of his trust in the Father, yeah, as a man, uh, which is all really, really cool. Well, what that means then is that at least one resurrected body has scars. So does that mean that all resurrected bodies will have scars? You know, right here, I don't know if you can see it very well, probably not. Right here, um, I have a scar from when I cut myself with a meat knife trying to cut butter in a bad way as a young man. And I actually jutted the knife into my into my arm. And then I was out water skiing when we were doing this. And so I just wrapped it up and kept water skiing. And as a result, I've got a pretty nice scar there. It's uh, it's uh, it's faded pretty well, I guess, in the last few years. But it's, it's still there. So will that be with me when I rise from the dead? I don't know. I mean, what what purpose would it serve? None, really. I mean, to remind me of my folly, I suppose. Which I, I think there's a perfect way to do that. I think there's a way to see... Um, are, are being saved from sin in such a way that is not filled with regret, um, that it, or at least it, it's not going to be without faith. I don't think we're going to have amnesia uh, of, of the world. Uh, I think we will have learned from the world and rejoice in that learning. Uh, but so, but will this be part of that? I really don't know. And then that has implications for the tattoo. So I got mine right here, not my favorite one ever. Um, got it when I was 18, and it's fine. It's cool. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Um, uh, I'd like a new one. <laughs> uh, might cover it, might not. I don't know. Will it be there when I rise from the dead? Well, it's a scar. Tattoos are scars. There's scars with ink inside them. So if this scar is gone, this one will be gone. If this one's not gone, like if I keep this one, do I have to have this one? Do I get to pick and choose? Is it is is Paradise and the Resurrection gonna be like that moment in the video game where you kind of wake up and it freezes, the screen freezes, and you have to make all these selections about you know what your eyes look like and what your scars are, and you got a tattoo here and there, and then you punch it out, and then then you can't change it again until like later in the game, and then you get to change it later. You know, is is that it? I don't know. I don't know. I think you should go into it as uh, as in. I think you should go into it in freedom without the question even applying. Honestly. I don't think the question should have any bearing on your view on tattoos. I think you should go into it knowing that whatever God does in paradise, which you will be at because of Christ, uh, whatever he does, you will rejoice. And so if you accidentally get a really bad tattoo here and it's with you in paradise, you're going to love it in paradise. You're going to be like, this is great because you're going to love everything in paradise. You're even going to love the memories of sin from which you are saved in Christ, through Christ, through his scars. So, does that mean go and get any stupid tattoo you want? No, that would be stupid. <laughs> Don't be stupid, right? Uh, again, I've seen, I've seen it. I've seen the Tasmanian devil tattooed by a friend on someone's leg. I didn't watch it happen, but I saw the picture, and that's not coming off, man. <laughs> so you know, think long and hard, and, and realize again that until you're 25, your brain ain't done yet. So you can't make, you cannot make lifelong decisions till you're 25 without guessing. So if you don't want to guess on your lifelong decisions, wait till you're 25 um, and then figure it out. And don't worry about it. Don't worry about it if you'll have a tattoo after the resurrection. Um, if you do, you'll love it. If you don't, you'll love it. Uh, biblical elders. Oh, this one's kind of important. Oh, I got to click on the right screen to make it go there. All right. And death. Uh, yeah. So the question I really want to answer is your second one here. Um, but I'll go ahead and answer the first one first. Uh, because it does Im- 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 uh, 
explain it a little bit. So you, you said, I feel that I've become desensitized to death. Uh, the one, and you mean like literally death is what you're desensitized to. Not you've been so desensitized that I'm dead, right? Um, I am desensitized to death itself. Uh, the wannabe pious Lutheran in me wants to believe it's because I'm focused on life in the heavens, new heavens and new earth, but I'm fooling myself as part of it. But I worry my heart has been hardened to the point that someone's death no longer affects me as it should. Your book Echo reminded me God hates death, so why do I not hate it? But look at it as glorious relief, the deliverance from evil. What is glorious relief and the deliverance from evil? And if you want to look at it that way, that's also faithful. And you can say it's just your sin, um, but that really isn't it. I mean, life on this planet sucks. We should really be more honest about it. Uh, we, we, I know it's better than it used to be. And so we should be grateful for what we have that we didn't used to have. I mean, um, I'll say it till my dying day. Dentists and toilets are two things you don't thank God for enough. And we should thank God for them like weekly, right? Uh, they're, they're really valuable things. That said, they didn't get rid of the thorns it didn't get rid of the back aches and the pains. Uh, I think we're eating poison and it's killing us, you know. And even then, you know, I think I think I found better nutrition, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to die, you know. So, uh, no matter how you look at this, this planet is messed up, and it's okay to to know to know that. And anybody who's battled depression is kind of part, half the answer. It's like, oh, it's okay to know, like that. This really sucks. I feel depressed for good reasons. <laughs> they're not bad reasons. They're good reasons. Uh, it doesn't mean that I want to stay in this state of, of apathy if that's what's come out of my depression. But uh, but it's not. The answer is not to feel guilty for being depressed, and the answer is not to feel guilty for thinking that uh, death is actually better than remaining here. Paul says as much as better by far to die and be with Christ. But it is better for you that I remain, he says, right? So he finds the value in life in others. Um, in this way, if death doesn't bother you when you see somebody die, well, I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty a cold and calculating uh, SOB, too, on that one. I mean, I think my grandma, whom I do love very much, uh, she died about two years ago, three years ago now. And uh, I don't believe I cried. And I wasn't even surprised. I mean, she'd battled lymphoma twice and beat it like twice and then was you know had a real de uh, degrade in her lungs and oxygen for like three years and, and was carrying a tank around I me mean, it was like it was coming you know and uh it but i didn't cry uh uh i i cried when my my, my father's been a bit ill the last uh, year and a half or so not really ill necessarily we're not sure what it is but d d declining and uh, he got really weak last summer and I, I i he was at my church and i stood by him for a song and and cried uh, over his impending potential death. So so it's not like I'm so cold I never feel it, but I really don't feel it. Uh, so I, I'm like, I'm with you. I'm trying to be with you, okay? Uh, when there's a big thing that happens in the world, like some school shooting or whatever, that kind of thing, again, I'm like, dude, that's serious stuff. That's the world we live in. But I'm not like sad. I don't get sad. Like I'm like, yep, that, that that's it right there. That's, that's the way it is right there. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's fine to, when we pray, deliver us from evil. We're not really playing for death. When we, when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying for the resurrection, right? Uh, but we also kind of know from history that there's a lot of death between Jesus' ascension and the resurrection. There's a good chance ours ends up dead too, right? Uh, so uh, deliver us from evil is, you know, bring me home, however that, that might be. But then is also lead us not into temptation, right? So we're living in the world and knowing that God's the author of death, yeah, uh, and trusting in that. Uh, but also God has death as an enemy, 
when I say author of death, be careful. I don't mean like eternal author, by the way. Um, I mean, he's the one who says right now, right? No one dies without his permission at this point. Uh, excuse me. Uh, and so, um, and death is his enemy too, and the one he's destroyed in Christ. So I don't know. I don't think you're, you got a problem here, honestly. Um, I think we all are different, and we respond emotionally different to different things. And at a certain point, if you're a very logical person, you're going to find death not to be as surprising. Uh, it'll still hit you. Uh, it'll hit you when you're not ready for it. But um, uh, it, it's not like you're – there's so much going on. How could you possibly cry over every death? You can't. There's just too much. Have you, you watched the news? There's too much death. Um, all right. So in light of this, you're you're concerned because you've agreed to become an elder at your LCMS church. You feel unqualified to be an elder as outlined by St. Paul. Now you're more concerned. Okay. So I'm just going to stop you right there. Yeah. Uh, you're not an elder as outlined by St. Paul. You're not going to be until you submit yourself to ordination and the preaching office, which you're not going to do. Right. So. Those rules do not apply to you. Just step back, listen to what I said, I'm going to say it again. Anything Paul says in the New Testament about an elder does not apply to you unless you're a pastor, because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about preachers. He's talking about those who are called and sent to teach the scriptures. What we call elders in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Congregation, sadly uses that word in a confusing and almost hard to understand historical finagling where it dropped into our history from Calvinism without us realizing it. And sadly, we adopted the word. It's not that the practice is necessarily bad, but the word itself doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. Right. So really, what is the, the board of elders at the congregation? They are the laymen, ideally, who are concerned with making sure the pastor stays healthy. That's what they're there for. They're there to make sure the pastor doesn't die and no one knows it's coming, or the pastor doesn't go bankrupt and nobody knows it's coming, or the pastor doesn't get sick, or the pastor doesn't go crazy, or the pastor doesn't feel alone. Right? They're there to buttress and guard the pastor as an asset of the congregation. It's a pretty valuable thing, but that is not what the biblical elder is. <laughs> the biblical elder is the pastor, <laughs> the, the preacher. And we got different words, deacon, overseer. Um, uh, so uh, there's another one I'm losing there along with it. Um, uh, minister, right? So servants, um, uh, all that stuff. Uh, preacher as well, of course. Father gets in there once. Priest is in there once. Um, so that role, that singular office is what Paul is giving requirements for. And we should just start holding pastors accountable to that rather than a bunch of laity who are not trying to do that task. Now, if you want to look at that list and say that list is something to aspire to as the as a Christian male, well, that's true. It is that. It is that. Uh, and so, for, by all means, hold yourself accountable to wanting to be that person. But you do, you don't have the right to keep yourself out of any offices in the church according to that list, except for the office of pastor itself, uh, directly and specifically. And you can you can pull from it. You can see this is a valuable description, um, but that is not the office. So it's just not even a question. Yeah, um, you're qualified to be an elder if your pastor says you are. That's that's kind of the way it is. Oh no, don't do that. I almost ended the broadcast. Thankfully, they give you uh, a button, two button choice. First communion. All right. I'll, so I got an email from a good a good uh, a friend the other day, and 
I just wanted to throw – it came through the, the same stuff, though, So redfist.com. I wanted to throw this out here because this guy is a great guy. He's going to be a pastor soon. His kids are not babies. Uh, they are, they're a little bit older. They can have the Lord – I'm sorry. They, they can confess a need and a hunger for the Lord's Supper, but they're too young to be confirmed or receive the Lord's Supper where he currently goes to church. And this bothers him. Now, I can understand that. It bothers me, too. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some real caution here because you said – you know, Lord willing, yes, amen, I will be ordained in 2023. Would I be allowed to authorize my children for communion by then if they haven't been yet? And the answer is most definitely no. <laughs> You're going to be a new pastor. You're going to go out to a new congregation. First call congregations, by and large, are on a cycle, rinse, repeat, of every two to three year pastor comes through a new pastor place, which means that while you are at the moment of, I can't wait to get going and make some good positive changes that impact the world, they are at the moment of, don't let him change anything because he'll be gone soon. That's how they receive you. They'll, they'll bake a cake. They might give you some money, uh, like a little, little gift. They might not. They'll give you a horsehair cottage to live in or they'll give you a, you know, a rent, a, a basic living rent, maybe, and some health care, maybe, hopefully. Um, and yeah, it's on the documents, but just because it's on the documents doesn't mean they have it when you get there. So just there's a lot of hoot nanny in this thing. You walk in those doors, and you got all sorts of confusion and fear and who knows what, and you got a lot to learn, and they got a lot to learn, and then you start communing your kids right away. They're never gonna listen to you about anything. You're just gonna turn half of them off. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's not about you and your kids. So I have. Uh, I've always pursued communion at my places where and with the group knowledge of the place. So uh, my oldest was communed in fifth grade because at Bethany and Naperville, we communed at fifth grade. Uh, my second oldest had to wait till seventh grade. She knew her sister had been communing since fifth grade, and she had to wait till seventh grade. Why? <clears throat> because the congregations that we went to, the first congregation we went to from, uh, from, from Naperville, they wanted to take it to the voters' assembly whether to allow my then sixth or seventh grader, who'd been communing for two years, whether to allow her to keep communing. <laughs> they wanted to vote on it. And thankfully, um, there was a loophole where they were unallowed to do so by virtue of her being uh, transferred as a communicant member in their constitution. If that line had not been in their constitution, they would have voted on it. That was not really their right to do, but they were going to do it anyway. That was a place I struggled. Uh, and I, I, I tried not to change too much. I probably did, though, right? Um, if I'd come in and, and just also started communing other kids, um, that would have been an issue. So my second waited until Rockford, actually. Uh, and just last year, finally joined us at the table. And uh, it's exciting. My, my third's going to come in a bit sooner because at Rockford, we have, by agreement, lowered it to fifth grade. And she's in fourth grade. But she's been going to class for three years, <laughs> and she knows it. So, so we're just not going to ask any questions this year because no one's asking questions at this point where we are. So, hey, if you want to move to Rockford uh, and, uh, and, and join my congregation and just do some pro bono work in the area, yeah, well, you know, we'll, get, we'll get them communing right away. But, but I highly recommend as a new pastor you don't do something radical, and this is radical. Most people are completely if, – if the congregation has not been prepped for this, they are completely unready for it. God said at age 13 they can finally eat the symbolic supper that none of us think much about. 
okay? <laughs> that's, that's where they are. And you've got to win them over. And that involves a lot more than saying, well, the Bible says, and this is true. Uh, you're going to have to win them over to trusting you in the first place. Trust is earned, not given. Uh, so if this matters that much to you, which I can understand why it would, you might, through your call process, say, I don't care where you send me in the world. I want to go somewhere where they let me commune my kids. Now, you might not get a call. <laughs> um, you might not get a call, but um, it is what it is, my friend. It really is. And while I agree communion should be treated differently, we can also fight this battle backwards and do damage to the cause by moving too fast and too far. That's happened. I've seen it happen. I've seen guys go into places, make a bunch of communion changes, and then have issues personally happen that drove them out of the ministry. And the result was that place is never going to have kids communion at a younger age, <laughs> ever, right? Uh, so you you got to be really, really careful with this stuff and um, uh, respect the system that you're going to try to impact. And if you want them to have a different view of communion with your kids, then they have to have a different view of communion with themselves first. And that's a five-year plan in a cold drop-in, parachute, first call. Five years minimum to get them to understand communion. And then maybe uh, you can start talking about age. Yeah, uh, Tough one, man. Tough one. All right. Rome versus certainty. Hey, Rafisk, I was wondering, how do you become confident that Protestantism has got it right on justification and the other core doctrines that came out of the Reformation and not Roman Catholicism? I'm from a Catholic family, but I'm Protestant. My family is insistent that faith alone and bondage of the will is wrong and that the church has ultimate authority. The church history backs this up. What? I was fine with the argument until, and the church history backs this up. Whatever. Wax nose. That's what I'm going to say to that. Yeah, you can pick and choose. Oh, there's a line here from one guy. Okay, sure. Uh, church history does not back up church authority being insoluble. Otherwise, there would, no, there would not be Eastern Orthodoxy. And there would never have been a time with three popes. And there would not be Catholics today who think the current pope is a false, is a false pope. Okay? Those things would not happen if this was the perfect uh, unified uh, you know, uh, teaching authority magisterium they confess it to be. Um, why did I make that noise? Huh. Got a, it spiked for some reason. All right. So, so on then. Okay. Church history. I've been wrestling with this for a while and wondering if you had any advice or recommendations. So, so what you're really getting at is confidence. Right? It's not about Roman Catholicism. It's about how do you know your certainty and where do you find your certainty in what you believe? And so, because what is happening, sorry, I'm sitting on a wire and it's pulling my head somehow. I got to get this fixed, otherwise, I'm going to go crazy. Come on now. Where are you? What am I pulling on? There are two wires. This one, right there. Okay, there we go. There we go. Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> Hold on, I just got to say, hey, Jedi Knight, um, that was like the opener, man. <laughs> that was the opener. Go back. Uh, so, da, 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 da. All right, Cert certainty and confidence. It is inevitable that at some point you doubt what you believe. It, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. When that happens, you will start to grasp for certainty in some way. <laughs> And in the end, your certainty will ever come, will either come from man, like you're going to look to a man that you can see alive somewhere and say that one, somehow, okay, Pope, Pope, we got Pope, we're certain, okay, or, or you're going to acknowledge that you have no certainty, 
apart from the justification of Jesus. So the question itself, how can you be certain that you got justification right? The answer is, I can't be certain. I cannot be justified apart from Jesus. <laughs> the only certainty is not me, but Jesus himself. It's more than just, I'm certain I'm right about justification. Rather, Jesus is right. And Jesus says, I'm justified. That's my certainty. So you're looking for an answer that doesn't exist because you want man's answer. You want to be certain in yourself. Uh, you want to be certain but with what's around you. You want to say, well, I'm sitting in this couch. And God said churches that have this couch are his church, and therefore I'm safe. Yeah. You, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to hold on to something like that. And you don't get that with Jesus. Uh, you don't, you, and, and with justification, you don't get that with the idea of justification. You get it with your baptism. That's the only place you get it. And supper too, but th that's where you get it, is your baptism, even before the supper. How are you going to know if the Lord's Supper is the right one and if you're at the right church? I mean, even that, you can start to doubt it and question it when you start looking for yourself. But baptism, this is the, the, the grand beauty of baptism. If you're baptized in the triune name, there's no question. God has you. God has you and will lead you to the true church and lead you to the truth. Continue to follow the scriptures and you will get there. Your baptism stands and makes you whole because that's Jesus justifying you. Now, if you go to a church that says that's not true, well, then now you're, you've cut off the starting point, haven't you? <laughs> but the point is it's outside of you. And it doesn't matter whether it was a Roman Catholic who baptized you or a Baptist who baptized you. You're baptized. A Lutheran who baptized you, you're baptized. So you can be certain that you are justified by Jesus justifying you when he says, I wash you. It's common sense, though. So now, if you're going to doubt common sense, well, Jesus didn't wash me. It's not his baptism. It doesn't do anything. Okay, well, you've, you've cut off your own leg. But if you're a Roman Catholic, you don't think that. Okay, well, good. So then you're, you're, you're good. You, you got, you're justified. So now the question is, since I know that baptism is my only hope, where's the church that teaches that? And Rome kind of pretends to. And then it says, but it's not. It just was the first plank. Now you have to earn more. And you can pay. We got credit. We'll take credit if you want to pay. Or you can do a lot of stuff. You choose. Um, you know, that, that, that's their approach. And our approach is that uh, Christ has justified you. It is a free gift. It is totally done. And now you're going to be hungry as you journey in that faith toward the last day. Uh, and you need to be fed by more of that same truth. But that, so, so what makes me confident is not the idea of justification as proven from scripture by itself, although you can do that too. <laughs> right? So, you know, at some point it's like what Jesus says, you know, uh, if you don't believe me, at least believe the miracles, you know, uh, well, if, if you don't believe like the obvious, at least believe what the scriptures say. And what the scriptures say, you can counter it with, well, history says it's different. I don't care what history says the scriptures say. It's, 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 it's evident Paul makes multiple arguments about justification itself. It is absolutely evident how justification works from the scriptures. And to argue against it is to be willfully ignorant. Rome doesn't even try anymore. Their catechism almost has gotten right to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, mostly they're right about that. But all the fallout, you know, the application of the system, they don't really go there with that. Uh, but but so they have to what they do is they reinvent the words right they change grace to be something different than what grace really is and all that 
Uh, I got a couple super chats here that I really want to throw up right away, uh, so I don't I don't lose them here. I will I'm gonna throw you guys up, but then I'm gonna come back to you in just a moment as I finish this. So, so if you're looking to argue with Roman Catholics and they're gonna do this church history unity thing, all, the answer is just to laugh and say, okay, whatever, because you know your history is not that clean at all, and your own your own scholars will teach you that uh, your history is not clean, and you're you're not unified. You're not unified now, let alone in history. You're so disjointed. If you enter into Rome, you will find everything in Rome. It's just all under the Pope's thumb and paying taxes. So they can build really good, beautiful buildings. I just saw one in Sheboygan. It's absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I'm so jealous. But, frankly, um, yeah. How do I become confident that Protestantism has it right? I'm just – I'm confident Jesus has it right, and I trust what his, his word says. And then his word says that the Pope really doesn't have it right. So I'm confident he doesn't have it right. I'm not confident Protestantism has it right. I'm not confident Lutheranism has it right. I'm confident Jesus has it right. And Jesus' word is the scriptures. And the scriptures are the source of Lutheran theology and, and thinking and confession. And I've never found anybody else that's so attentive to that detail on every level. So I'm a Lutheran. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't make Lutheranism right by itself. Just because I say I'm a Lutheran and then I say something else doesn't make that thing true. Right? Uh, so what am I confident in? I'm confident in Jesus. All right, so Super Chats. Uh, hey, Paul, going large with the 799. Thank you. I know you wish we still had titles like Johan the Steadfast, and I've decided you should be Pastor Jonathan Fisk the Resolute. Yes, you know the title I really want is the Magnanimous. I've said that from the beginning, yeah, uh, along with uh, – oh, no, I lost his name. Uh, Paul Frederick? The Mag- no, no, no. Ah, forget it. Uh, St. John, uh, John the Steadfast's brother. Right? No. Hold on. Frederick the Wise's son is the magnanimous. Anyway, that's what I want to be, is magnanimous. But that's okay. I'll take the, I'll take Resolute. Resolute's good. The Mad would be nice too, though. Pastor Jonathan Fisk, the Mad. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Uh, Lois just gave me a nice gift. Thank you, Lois. Wow, guys. I, I was skeptical of Super Chat, but you're like, you're on it. I really appreciate that. All right, cool. Uh, I still got a couple more here to go for you. I really do want to get through these. Uh, Teaching your kids. Could you share some insight on how to implement prayer and scripture to day life as a family? It seems like catechism and teaching the word has become to a lot of families on the pastor's job. Only the pastor's job, not the father's. Amen. I'm not great at it, honestly, because I'm a pastor. And so I cheat. And I have my kids come to everything that I do. So they're in every Bible study. If it's an adult Bible study, if it's a youth Bible study, whatever, they're there. And so I force them to see me talking about Jesus all the time. So I, I, I get a cheat. Um, I've tried in the past doing after-dinner things. Um, it's kind of like – and this is really sad. But you know how like if you do something all day as your job, you don't come home and want to play a video game about that thing right? or watch a movie about that thing. Uh, you would rather be entertained in some way that is not that thing. This is probably my, just an excuse here. Thank you, Cafe Sola. I've been – uh, I feel like I hadn't seen you for a bit. It's good to see you again there. I haven't noticed you. I apologize, but thank you very much. Um, so you know, maybe this is just my excuse because it is hard to talk about Jesus. But you know, after dinner, um, I just have a lot of trouble going back and like, like, let me teach more now. I just spent all day doing this. Like I'm doing it right now, right? And actually, I got two kids listening, by the way. <laughs> um, I just spent all day doing this, and so it's it's like I don't really want to do it right after dinner. Thankfully, my wife is fantastic and we homeschool and so we've built it in that way so they're getting it from me 
constantly, like publicly. And then they're also getting it from her every day, assigned readings, some conversation, things like that. What I would do if I could, what I keep still trying to do is create a after dinner time discussion in which I tell stories. And the stories I tell are just the Bible stories. And we talk about it, not so much as in, let's just read the Bible together, but let me tell you about it. Let me have enough of an understanding of it to tell you the story yourself and have you hear it. And then, you know, you can check it in the Bible. Absolutely. So I've looked at it that way. Um, I've never, the problem is the times we've done that, we've done that three times. It was so good that we talked for like three hours and nothing got done that night for anybody. (laughs) So it was like, it was like too much of a success and then it failed as a result. So I'm not quite sure what the answer or the solution is to that one. Um, we do things like we sing hymns during Advent. So we don't sing hymns every night all year long. But Advent, we all pick hymns, five favorite hymns, throw them in a jar. It's our Advent calendar. Um, you know, things like that. The, the point is less how you do it. The point is more your, your point here that many seem to think that the job is the pastor's job. And that is exactly the problem. Because if you think the pastor can convince your kids to be Christian, when you don't, when you can't, you're, you're fooling yourself. You will convince them to be or not be Christians based on your own doing, right? And so if you don't ever talk about it, they won't think it's important. It's not like you're sending your kids to hell on purpose or something like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But if you never talk about it, then why would they think it's important? And they think you're the most important person in the world. So you've taught them it's not worth talking about. It's that simple. And on the flip side, talking about it in any form teaches them it's worth talking about. Even if you're like, you know what? We're going to talk about this. It's really hard to talk about. I don't know how to talk about it, but I want to talk about it with you because I think it's important. Like that's going to stun them. They're, they're going to be like, whoa, like this is serious. They believe this stuff. You know, you go to church and go to Bible study and make them go to Bible study with you, make them sit down beside you, take a few notes, open the Bible. The, do that every week for their life, you know, from age two to age, age uh, 18. They're going to be doing it because the practice and the habit of seeing their parent, father particularly, but mother as well, engaged in knowing God will be what makes them want to know God. As opposed to, we're going to send them to a specialist and have them sort of like specially trained for two years. Like, look, if you're going to do that, if we're going to do like the the club sports version of of training up the disciples, then we need some more seriousness here because club sports do not meet once a week for half a year uh, just for two years of the life, right? We get these kids going when they're four. uh, They got to be five days a week, two hours a day, right? And it, it becomes their life. Okay, well, we're not doing that even. The pa- I'm at the point now, and we just, I've talked about this before, but uh, confirmation is becoming a one-on-one conversation with the kids, and then the parents need to talk about the catechism at home with the kids. And I'll fill it in. We'll talk about it. Don't get me wrong. And we still have some classes and stuff that they go to, uh, but I'm just, I'm just convinced. And, and our small um, uh, experiment with this this spring, after I've had seven or eight meetings with the kids now, uh, I'm, I'm convinced all the more that first, they already know most of what we're trying to teach them in confirmation on some elementary level, and so they're bored. Uh, and then uh, second, they've been ready to commune for years, most of them. Uh, and then uh, uh, third, um, it's just a waste of our time to do it this way <laughs> for everybody. Uh, and they're, you know, having the parents teach them some very basics, bring them to Bible study, uh, and then um, uh, bring them to be interviewed by the pastor is really all it, all it takes. And we're, we're running in circles trying to make these classes happen. 
as if it's the real deal. It's not It's not the job. I should point this out to you. Super chat from Rachel. Thank you very much, Rachel. I appreciate that. Um, the, uh, uh, the Bible never says in that we were talking about overseers before overseers and elders nowhere does it say in overseers and elders requirements and, and things to do does it say specifically teach the children it never says that but the phrase teach your children more or less paraphrase is in the bible you know who it says it to fathers fathers raise your children in the fear and admonition of the lord it, it doesn't say pastors ever it says fathers pastors do everybody as a whole as a group as a unit so, uh, yeah, the ghost of Dewey, the ghost of Dewey hangs over us strongly. All right, getting close, getting close. The soul, oh, wow, this one's big. Okay, uh, very in your video, you, uh, uh, Knowing God class from Wednesday, uh, caught it. Sorry to say, I've not heard the time to watch. Uh, part about the soul, I would like to know. Uh, I was recently in a group discussion with some non-Christians, asked what is the soul. The question came in a wider conversation. The Christians in the group said we believe that Jesus died for our sins. He will return, and when he does, our bodies will be raised perfect and reunited with our souls. And we'll live with him in eternity. I said immortality is one of the attributes of the soul, as far as I can go. I knew it was ineffective. I was stumped. What is the soul? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I realized I have no idea how to describe the soul. I've been under 70 years. I can't describe the soul. I think this is important. Uh, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in heaven and hell. So when it comes to resurrection, what happens? Just our bodies raised? No. As you imply today, the body without life is nothing. So resurrection means more than a renewed body. Is it a reunited of our bodies and souls? If so, what is the soul? Again, I, this is my, was my point before in, uh, in the class. Is, is my point um, again now. Um, we don't know. And you're just you're, you're, you're trying to answer a question based on a question, <laughs> right? Like, we don't know what a soul is. You can't find it. You can't point to it. And the Bible doesn't quite speak about it the way that any of that said. Okay. Is it possible that there is some way of using the word soul to describe that thing that is you that God takes out of your body on the day you die and puts in Jesus and then puts back into your body on the day of resurrection? Yes. What's that? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know how to talk about it. Is it my thoughts? Is it my emotions? I hope it's not all of them. <laughs> Some of them are awful, you know. Uh, we just don't know. And that's my problem. And so what we've done is we've taken this Greek con construct, this Greek philosophical construct, and we've just imposed it on the scriptures and its language in the scriptures of spirit and soul and nephesh. Rather than let the scriptures teach us what that that thing means more. And it's 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 elusive what it means. It means life. You have a life. Your body is alive. And on the day you die, your body is not alive anymore. And God takes your life to be with Christ. See, that's a very different connotation than soul, though, doesn't it? So, but can I point to my life? Not quite the same way, but, but I can. I can point to my life way easier than I can point to my soul. Right now, I point to my body. My body is alive. That's my life. What is my life without my body? I don't know. But I do know that I will have one in Christ, and I'm comfortable saying that and not being afraid of it. Whereas when I talk about my soul going to heaven, I have no clue what that means. And it's because the Bible doesn't talk about that. right? The Bible talks about your life being hidden with Christ in God. And, um, and you being resurrected. You having your body be made alive again. And you being alive even though you're dead. Yea, though you die, yet you will live. right? All that language there. Um, so... I wouldn't worry about it, and I wouldn't try to convince Christians that they're wrong about it, generally. I, I want to convince you individuals, 
And I want to convince pastors to stop talking this way so that gradually as Lutherans we can recover our, our theology of the body and our theology of the resurrection in, in a full way. And I think these words get in the way of that. But I wouldn't try to convince some random Christian on the street about it because it's just not in their context. It, their system doesn't need this. Their system's happy, you know, crashing as a sales pitch for a toaster oven. Um, sorry, that was, that was snarky as heck. <clears throat> Last one for the morning here. Uh, by the way, we've had some real great numbers. We broke 90 this morning, everybody. I hope that uh, makes you feel good. And uh, yet our likes are still down at that 39. That seems a little low to me, 39. Uh, so, okay. Uh, got your video asking about Roman Catholic girl and the guy he was dating her. The video brought to mind a conversation I had with my Bible class. Uh, curious for your thoughts. One of the things we talked about was that many of us know somebody who, I just got all nervous that my mic isn't working, which you would tell me if it wasn't working, but I wonder how the battery is doing. It's getting low. Um, uh, one of the things we talked about was how, how many of us know someone who left Lutheranism or Christianity after marriage to an unbeliever or a heterodox believer. Thanks for the likes, everybody. Uh, and it brought up an interesting argument. When we talk about the decline of church attendance, I have to wonder if at least some of that decline has to do with Christians wanting to please non-Christian spouse. Uh, your point in the video, dissuading Christians from marrying unbelievers or heterodox believers, a good point, is something that's not often talked about in church today, either from the pulpit or among the congregants. Truthfully, I have to emphasize, I have to wonder whether it's emphasized to children by their parents. It's not. It's just not. Nobody talks about this. Uh, so, to your thoughts, based on the experiences, do you believe that this is something contributing significantly to the decline of church attendance? Yes. Uh, and do you find it needs to be discussed more frequently in and out of church? Yes, but I just don't know how. Uh, one of the things that I've thought about recently is trying to start a regular, uh, like, three-week, maybe just a one-day um, young men's uh, how-to-get-married class, uh, you know, one Saturday and anybody from like 12 to 50, right? Uh, single men's how to get married class and then a single woman's uh, how to get married class just to talk about it because, I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, there are a lot of people who move in together, guys and girls who grew up in the church and move in together and never really were told it was wrong. Now, maybe not in Missouri City churches, um, but uh, in churches, they go to church, they have church experience, they have Christianity and they move in together and they, they never knew. They just thought that was what you did before marriage. This is how you do it, right? So with that being said, then, um, I think it's pretty normal that a kid would grow up in America and just assume you marry whoever you want to marry, especially if no one talks to them about it. it why, why would they? Why would they make that up in their own, right? And so, yeah, it's just unknown. So again, you know, I would have like a boot camp class. I don't know. I can't I, – It's on the list of things to do. It's just, it's just out of range to do it. Uh, what we need really is some sort of uh, parachurch group or, or, you know, a, a YouTube guy who that's his thing, <laughs> right? A YouTube pastor who does that. Uh, and, and then that's not me. I do too much, right? Um, so, uh, hey, if you want to be that guy, um, uh, I'm looking to uh, bring more onto the channel. And so if you want to be the guy who talks about uh, how to be a man, how to be a woman, um, uh, shoot me a, shoot me a text. You got to be a pastor. You got to be entertaining. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and she should be Lutheran too. But, but so yeah, I I, um, I believe it's contributing to church attendance decline. Yeah, people marry non-Christians, become non-Christians, stop going to church. It's not just about pressure, but it is that too. I mean, there's a Christian who comes to church with great regularity but is married to a non-Christian tithe. What if she's a lady 
and the guy doesn't want to share, right? I mean, so it, it has all sorts of implications about how the life of the congregation goes. Uh, and worst of all, it's going to impact the kids, like I said before. So uh, does it need to be discussed frequently? Yes, it needs to be discussed headily and all the time. Let's get out of there and back to here. All right, everybody. It is officially 835. I went longer than I said I would. Uh, I would love to get into your comments. Thank you for all the super chats today. That's pretty sweet. Uh, that'll help bolster stuff. Um, as always, um, I've got to go because, uh, again, i got to feed these kids haven't eaten yet. And then I'm talking about the Heidelberg Disputation at uh, Higher Things Sheboygan in just about two hours now here. So i gotta, I got to get going there. Thanks for tuning in this morning. I appreciate you all. As always, thanks for your questions. Keep them coming, and we will see you on the flip side. Don't wallow in the muck. Rock on.